Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for part four of He Shall Reign. All right, well, Luke chapter two, starting in verse one, it says, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from who? What's his name? Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. Okay, I want to give you the history of this pretty fascinating character named Caesar Augustus. And so Caesar Augustus was his title, but Gaius Octavius was his actual name. And so a little bit about him, Gaius Octavius later conferred um, the Senate, Roman Senate conferred upon him the name Augustus, the title Augustus. He was born in 63 BC, and he died in AD 14. Okay, and so after Julius Caesar was assassinated in uh, 44 BC, you remember members of the Senate literally stabbed Julius Caesar to death. Well, after that time, uh, the Roman government was shaken, and there was a lot of unrest in the Roman Republic, and there was a lot of guys that were vying for the, the, the throne that Julius Caesar uh, left vacant. Now, two of the guys who were rivals for the throne, one of them was yours truly, Gaius Octavius, and the other um, was a guy named Mark Antony. Mark Antony was a politician and a general in the Roman Republic, and Gaius Octavius was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Now, these two guys, Mark Antony and Gaius Octavius, they once were allies. In fact, Mark Antony married Octavius's sister, and everything was great until Mark Antony went over to Egypt, and he saw a young lady, and he fell in love with her. And so he divorced Octavius's sister for this Egyptian lady. Her name was Cleopatra. And so now all of a sudden there's bad blood between Gaius Octavius and Mark Antony. They become rivals, again, for the throne of the Roman Republic. And everything came to a head in 31 BC. Because in 31 BC, the forces of Gaius Octavius and the forces of Mark Antony and Cleopatra went toe to toe. It was actually a naval battle. It was the naval battle of Actium. It was the final war of the Roman Republic. And so after that fierce battle, Gaius Octavius and his forces came out on top. Mark Antony and Cleopatra had to flee to Egypt and later on, because they knew that they could not escape Octavius' wrath. Later on, Mark Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide. And so now Gaius Octavius is the undisputed leader of Rome. And not long after his victory at Actium, the Roman Senate recognized, listen to this, this is important, they recognized Gaius Octavius as the first Roman emperor. And so in 27 BC, the Roman Republic ended and the Roman Empire began and Gaius Octavius, later known as Caesar Augustus, becomes the first Roman emperor. Around that time, the Senate decides we're gonna confer a title upon Gaius Octavius, a title that's worthy of this man's great stature and, and, and uh, fame. And so they came up with the title Augustus. The word Augustus means 
Um, highly exalted or the revered one, the exalted one. That's your name now. And Gaius Octavius said, okay, he accepted the name. And the fact that he accepted the name exalted one as a politician, as a man, well, that tells us a little bit about this guy's character. He was really into himself. So Octavius, he was a great administrator. He's the one, when you study history, who brought all the Roman provinces together. He's the one who ushered in what's known as Pax Romana, a Latin phrase for the Roman peace. That's a little bit about the guy here in verse one. And so once again, let's look at it. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, that's the Roman world, the Roman Empire, should be registered. And then Dr. Luke, the historian who wrote this gospel, he wants to narrow it down. Rome's a big place. Roman Empire's a big place. He wants to narrow it all the way down to one, one little province, verse two. He says, this census first took place while Coranius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, all in the um, Roman province of Syria, which by the way included Judea at that time, all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now when you dig into the history, here's what you find out, that way back when Julius Caesar was alive, he was the one who actually started this census of what's then known as the Roman Republic, later on becomes the Roman Empire, and after 32 years, finally, Caesar Augustus is the one who finished the census that Julius Caesar started. The census took a long time because they had to go from province to province to province, and it would later be used for the Roman government to tax its subjects through the poll tax. And so all the subjects of the Roman Empire, all these different people groups, which included the Jews, hated the census because they knew that when Rome found out their name, <laughs> their occupation, etc., that there was taxes coming down the road. And nonetheless, the decree went forth. The Roman province of Syria um, has to comply. And so, again, that included Judea. They all go to their cities of their tribal roots. It says in verse 2 that the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, and so Quirinius was the guy that Augustus appointed in the Roman province of Syria to administrate this census. Okay, look at verse four now. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. Okay, so Dr. Luke, the historian, he's narrowing it all the way down now to a Jewish couple. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called what? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. That's important. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, here's the story behind the story, right? Who cares about the Roman Empire? What's the true story? The true story is what God was doing in the world through Israel. And so 700 years before there was any Roman census, uh, way back before there was anything called the Roman Republic, there was a Jewish prophet named Micah. And God, the God of heaven, decided to tell Micah when the future Messiah would come to the earth. 
And so way back in the 8th century BC, and I think we put this up on the screen during uh, week one of this, of this series, but here's the prophecy. But you, what's the word? Bethlehem, okay? And so remember last uh, Christmas Eve when we talked about how the Jews will see the one whom they pierced? I think that was the 6th century BC. Now we're going back the 8th century BC, and it tells the, the town where Messiah would be born. Again, you can't make this stuff up. All right, so, but you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of towns of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, God says, the one to be, what's the next three words? Ruler in Israel, okay, that's Messiah. I love the last sentence whose goings forth, talking about the Messiah, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. He came from eternity. He didn't start in Mary's belly. He wasn't created. He was from everlasting, the eternal God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, help me out, God. Who's the Word? Jesus. Jesus was and is God. He comes from eternity. And so the, the prophecy was crystal clear. The Messiah would one day be born in Bethlehem. But on the human level, there was a big problem. And the big problem was that Mary, who was carrying the Messiah, she was in her third trimester of her pregnancy, and she was ready to pop. And so here, here's the problem. Mary was nowhere near Bethlehem. She was way up 70 plus miles to the north, in an obscure little village called Nazareth. And apparently, Mary didn't know anything about this ancient prophecy in the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay, here's a question for you guys. Um, would, do you guys think that the Lord... Well, first of all, do you guys think that this was a problem to the Lord, yes or no? Do you think the Lord would be able to fulfill His own promise and get Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem, yes or no? Of course He could, why? He's God, right? And so here's, here's your first point. If you're taking notes, God always fulfills the promises, look at this, of his word. Always, always, always. Some of you guys are not in the habit of reading the word. I say it every single week because I so want you guys to read the word because here's, here's what I know. When you start to read the word and you do it the next day and the next day and the next day, you begin to to get a taste for the word and you begin to spiritually hunger for the word. And now, man, if you miss a day in the word, you're just like, I'm so starving, I gotta get back to the Bible. Now it's so important, one of the reasons it's so important to get into the word of God is that the word of God is filled with thousands of promises of God that you and I can stand on. The word of God is filled with promises, thousands of promises of God that you and I can absolutely Take to the bank. Now, now here's why that's important. Because I know that 10 out of 10 of you, you're going to experience trials and problems and difficulties and storms in your life. And, and like Mr. T, I, I kind of pity the fool. <laughs> I pity the fool who doesn't know God's word during those trials and those storms. Because you're going to collapse. Listen, when the hard times come, you got to stand on God's word and his promises. Let me just give you a few examples before we move on about the promises of God's word. I know there's a lot of Christians who have been saved. And you know what? Every single week of their lives, they fear whether they're gonna go to heaven or not. 
And it's because they've been taught some wrong doctrine in some wrong church that, that true, born again, children of God, adopted sons and daughters of God can actually mess up their lives and die and go to hell. And they live in that fear and they're not able to move on and grow as Christians. And so, but, but what's the promise of God's word? Here it is, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. Everybody say, shall never perish. Go ahead. That's a promise of God. God's a promise keeper. He's not a promise breaker. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. You say, are you sure, Pastor Mike? How do I know for sure that I'm gonna get, get, get through to the end? And God's gonna finish this work. Here's another promise of God. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you shall complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You gotta stand on that. Man, in 1984, when I met Jesus in a very real way, I began to doubt. The first few months after um, I was saved, I began to doubt whether I was truly saved or not. I used to freak out about whether I'm going to heaven or hell. And so what I did, thank God, somebody told me, you just gotta, you gotta memorize some promises of God's word and you gotta stand on those promises. And that's what I did. And since 19, as God is my witness by the grace of God, since 1984, I have never once doubted my salvation. Why? Because I take God's word at face value. And I know, as I said, he's not a promise breaker. He's a promise keeper. And once you know that you know that you know that you have eternal life, you're able to continue now to take the next steps in your Christian life and continue to grow. But someone says, well, how do I know, you know what the will of God is? Do I have to figure all this thing out? Is it like a maze and I'm a rat and there's cheese over here and I got to bump? Is that, is that what life is like? No. Listen to the promise of God in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You don't have to figure all this out. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall bring it to pass. That's a, a promise of God that you can absolutely take to the bank. Well, well, Pastor Mike, how do I really prosper in life? Here's another promise of God. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bears his fruit in its season, whose leaf also does not wither, and whatever he does, he shall prosper. Whatever, I, whatever you do, that's a promise of God that you could take to the bank. If, okay, it's conditional, you meditate in the word of God day and night. And so someone says, well, yeah, but how do I know if I start living this way that God's gonna start taking care, is, is, is he gonna take care of me, really? Here's another promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, the necessities of life, shall be added unto you. You guys 
catching my drift here? I could go on and on and on. But this book is filled with precious promises. Memorize them. Get to know them. Stand on them. You can take them to the bank. How would God fulfill his promise concerning where the Messiah would be born? How's God going to get Mary, who's up in Nazareth, down to Bethlehem, so that Micah 5.2 actually comes true? Well, he's going to use Caesar's census. And that's exactly what he did. Now, remember, the Roman Empire was a big place, and everybody had to be registered throughout the empire. They did it province by province by province. It took a very long time. Finally, the people in the province, the Roman province of Syria, which included Judea, finally, the, the people that lived in an obscure place called Galilee, they got the order to go and register. And so it just happened that at that time in history, Mary was in her third trimester and ready to pop. And it just so happened that the one that she was betrothed to, Joseph, he was of the house and lineage of David, and so Joseph had to go back to his hometown. Guess where his hometown is? Go ahead and say the name. Bethlehem. What a coincidence that the people in Galilee were suddenly called to register and go back to their hometown right when Mary was in her third trimester and ready to pop. What a coincidence. Do you really believe in coincidences? I don't believe in coincidences, I believe in god winces <laughs> Why? Because history, ladies and gentlemen, is his story. And God is sovereign. And he's absolutely gonna work out his will. And so Joseph came to Mary, he's like, honey, I know you're in no shape to travel, uh, but we gotta go to Bethlehem. And so they started their over 70-mile trek from Nazareth up in Galilee all the way down to Bethlehem of Judea, over 70 miles of a lot of its mountainous terrain. The Bible doesn't tell us, but she's either on the back of a donkey or she's in a cart being pulled by a donkey. Either way, it's a rough ride. And so I'm wondering in her third trimester if that rough ride caused the baby to come sooner. We don't know. But what we do know is that they arrived in Bethlehem just in time for Mary to give birth to Jesus. Why? Because God's word never fails. Look now at verse 6. So it was that while they were there in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So Joseph and Mary, they arrive in Bethlehem and the place is packed. It's a small village, but the place is packed. The reason it's packed is because a lot of people had to register for this census. And so a lot of people were in Bethlehem in this, at this time. And it says in verse six, that the days were completed for her to deliver. In other words, her water broke. In other words, the contractions are starting. And so they're in rush mode. Mary and Joseph are in rush mode. We gotta find a place. This baby's coming, right? They didn't have any hospitals back then, especially around Bethlehem. So where are we gonna go? And so they began to look, and the first place they rushed to 
At the end now of verse seven, it says the N. Okay, and so what in the world in those days was an N? Well, it certainly wasn't a Ritz-Carlton, we know that. In the Greek, it's kataluma, and it simply means a lodging place. A lodging place. When you think of the inn in Bethlehem, which was, again, a small village, don't think Ritz-Carlton, of course. Don't think even, you know, Motel 6 with a, a flashing no-vacancy neon sign. That's not the idea at all. It's just a, a, a simple lodging place. The inn was a cataluma, and most likely, follow me here, most likely it was an ancient, what's called caravansary caravansary. You say, what's a caravansary? Well, um, when you uh, read uh, different commentaries, one in particular, Dr. G. Coleman Luck, when he was alive, he was the chairman of the Department of Biblical Studies at Moody Bible Institute. He defines it for us. Check it out. The caravansary is a large square edifice built around an open inner courtyard In the center of the courtyard, a well is provided. You guys know why, right? Because of the animals. And often the building is two stories with the lower one containing stalls for the beasts or animals and the upper level consisting of small rooms for use of the human travelers. Okay? And so when Mary and Joseph rushed to the inn, the kataluma in the Greek, we believe it's an ancient caravansary. By the way, if you go to Lebanon, there's an ancient caravansary that's probably uh, 1,500 years old. Okay, so when they got to Bethlehem, there's this, caravans- there's this caravansary or this cataluma, and all the upper rooms, the places of lodging for human beings was full. And so, here's the traditional Christmas story. The traditional Christmas story is that they had to go out to a cave outside of Bethlehem. Anybody ever hear that? Cave that was supposedly where animals were lodged in. Um, I, I, I don't believe that personally. Uh, other people will say, well, it's a private residence and Joseph went to see relatives and those relatives, because Mary was scandalously pregnant, didn't want him to come up there. And so they had to stay on the bottom part of the house, which was a place for the animals. And that could be true. That's probably nearer to the truth. But personally, I'm persuaded that this was just a cataluma, an ancient cataluma, exactly what is described there on your screen. And so the second story is full. And so they got to stay at the lower part of the Cataluma where the animals were, where the well was, where there's where this hay. Now, can you imagine the lower level where the animals were? I mean, you got to be careful where you're stepping, right? If you're Joseph and Mary, it's, it's a horrible place, but nonetheless, it's the only place. And the contractions, you know this moms, they're getting stronger and stronger and closer and closer together. So the next thing you know, Mary is lying down on the straw, the lower level of this Cataluma. And she's getting ready to give birth to the Lord of all creation. And I'm wondering, I'm just wondering, I don't know for sure, but as these contractions are getting stronger and stronger, I'm wondering if Mary's thinking, Lord, here? As she's looking around at these animals. Really? You know, I thought when Gabriel gave me this this angelic announcement nine months ago that I would be the mother of the Christ child, I thought for sure it'd be better circumstances than this. What's going on? She's confused. She's 15 or 16 years old. And right there in that very humble place, Mary gives birth 
as we sang a little while ago, to the one who made the stars of heaven. Now, do you think she was crying out in pain as she gave birth? Yeah. (laughs) There's no anesthesia. As far as we know, there's no midwife to help. And by the way, she's down, can you picture this in your mind? She's down at the lower level with the animals. She's screaming like all moms yell when they have babies. And nobody in the upper part of the Cataluma came down to help. This 15 or 16-year-old who's having a baby, no one wants to be bothered. Not only can you not have my room, I'm also not going to help you. And so thank God for Joseph. Joseph was there to help. Mary gives birth to Jesus. I believe Joseph is the one who cuts the umbilical cord. No doubt they knew that she was going to have a baby. They brought towels on their trek from Bethlehem, and so they wiped the baby off with towels. And the next thing you know, they lay him in a manger. What's a manger? A manger is simply an animal feeding trough. Can you believe this? a little stone box. They'd fill it up with grain so that the animals on the lower level of the Cataluma could have something to eat. Joseph probably wipes the thing out, puts some straw in it, and they lay the baby, the king of kings and the lord of lords, in the manger. It says Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths. That's literally strips of cloth that they would, it was very common in that day, they would wrap up the, 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 the babies to protect their fragile skin, to keep them warm. And so, what humble beginnings for our Lord. And I, I thought, um, last night or this morning, I can't remember when, but I thought, what a difference between Jesus and Lucifer. What a difference in the attitude. You guys remember um, back in Isaiah 14, Lucifer, right, right? Remember, he was created a perfect angel. He was the anointed cherub. Many Bible scholars believe that he kind of led the worship of heaven. But the problem, like Caesar Augustus, is he allowed it to go to his head. And angels have a free will. Angels are able to sin. And Lucifer sinned. It was the sin of pride. And the Bible records the thoughts of his heart back in that time. He says, I will. There's five I will. It's self-will. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high God. What a difference between Lucifer and Jesus, who, Philippians 2, being in the form of God, form morphe, that means essential nature. In other words, Jesus wasn't his God. Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made him, look, 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 made himself of no reputation. No reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. What a difference. Lucifer's like, I will, I will, I'm gonna ascend, I'm gonna be all that, I'm into myself, I'm on an ego trip. The three most important people to me is me, myself, and I, right? And then what was, what was the result of him trying to go up? The result in Isaiah 14, 15, 
Yet you, Lucifer, shall be brought down to hell, to the lowest depths of the pit. And what was the result of Jesus choosing to humble himself? It says in Philippians 2.9, God, therefore, has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on the earth, under the earth, in heaven, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, so, 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 what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is the way up is down, the way down is up. The way up is down. What does that mean? That means that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, should make it our mission in life to have no reputation and just be a servant behind the scenes, loving people, caring for people. And as we do that, God will exalt us in due time. But if you have the mentality, I'm going to make a name for myself and I'm going to climb the corporate ladder and I'm going to beat people down that are trying to take my position and you're on some kind of ego trip, guess what? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So be humble. Just be a nothing. Just kind of be a nothing, right? Hey, you, you have eternal value in God's sight. You're a child of the living God. That should be enough security that we have to say, you know what? I'm just going to be a servant the rest of my life. Look now at Luke 2, verse 8. It says, now there were in that same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. Silent night, not anymore. <laughs> and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. And so here's these shepherds. Can you guys picture this, okay? Try to make the Bible come alive. Don't just read words and keep reading words and keep reading words, okay? Just stop. Remember Selah? Think about it in the Psalms. So here's these shepherds, and they're out in the fields, and it is a silent night. They're out there. By the way, they're out there. A lot of people say it can't be winter months because shepherds wouldn't be out in the fields during the winter months. Well, guess what? If you go over to Israel right now, there's shepherds living out in the fields. It's not that cold. And by the way, what do sheep wear? You guys didn't say the word. Wool. So they're warm. The shepherds have a brain. They're putting on extra clothes. I heard one pastor say, I've been to Israel 25 times. Two of those times were in December, and both of those times I was out in the fields outside of Bethlehem with the shepherds in December. And so we don't exactly know the exact date of when Christ was born, but don't rule out winter time because you think some guy said, don't believe everything you read on the internet, okay? <laughs> That's important. Do the research. And so the shepherds were sitting out under the stars. They're watching over their flocks. And then all of a sudden, this peaceful night suddenly turns into shock and awe, right? Because this angel of the Lord appears and the glory of the Lord shines round about them, and the whole field that they were standing up in becomes ablaze with the glory of God, right? Everything's changed. The heart rate is like going through their chest right now. 
And they're shaking in their sandals. And so that's why the angel has to say to them, and now in verse 10, the angel says, do not be afraid. There it is again. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a, note this, Savior who is Christ the Lord. Okay, check, check it out, please. Savior, what does that mean? That means that Messiah from eternity came to seek and to save those who were lost. How many of you guys know for a fact that at one point in your life you were lost? Could I please see your hands? Every hand should be up in the room. Right? So what does this mean? A savior had to come? Here's what it means. I'll say it every single week until it finally dawns on some people. It means there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Because if you and I could save ourselves through good works, God would not have had to become flesh and be a savior. He is savior who is Christ, Christos in the Greek, anointed one, Messiah, he's the Messiah, and he is Lord, in the Greek is Kyrios. So the, the people who wrote the, the Septuagint, that's the Greek Old Testament, as they're taking the Hebrew text, whenever they see the word Yahweh, transliteration, they see the word Yahweh, when they interpret it into the Greek, they put Kyrios. He is Savior, Christ, he is Kyrios, he is Yahweh God. That's our Jesus. And so the angel says in verse 12, this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a what? Why in the world did the angel have to tell the shepherds go look for a baby lying in a manger. The reason why is because never in a million years would Jewish shepherds think that their Jewish Messiah would be born in the lower level of a Cataluma and be, and be, be lying in an animal feeding trough. <laughs> they would have thought that their Jewish Messiah would have been born at the Herod's temple down the street in Jerusalem with great pomp and circumstance. And so the angel had to tell them that so they wouldn't run over to Jerusalem. No, 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 he's in Bethlehem and he's in a manger. What? Yeah, he's in a manger. And so if, if it's not enough for just one angel of the Lord to appear to a bunch of common shepherds in a field, check out now verse 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, and I want everybody, like you mean it, we're all gonna repeat, we're all gonna say verse 14 together on the count of three. You guys ready? Now, now say it like you mean it. And if you have the New King James Version, shout it out. As I always say, if you have another version, just whisper it because it'll sound like tongues throughout the whole <laughs> church. So we wanna be on the same page, okay? And so on the count of three, verse 14, ready? One, two, three, go. Okay, I love you guys, right? But that's not how the angels said it. They're excited. 
because the Savior, Christ, Yahweh, God, has been born to the earth. And so I'm going to give you another chance, okay? And I want you to say it like you're excited about the true meaning of Christmas, right? Okay, so on the count of three, verse 14, one, two, three, go. Now, good job. Okay, so who's saying that? You know who's saying that? A multitude of the heavenly host. What does that mean? That means that if it wasn't enough for one angel of the Lord to be standing there and they're like shaking, now all of a sudden the sky is filled with the heavenly host. That means God's angelic army filling the skies. I don't want to keep talking about how my, my trips to Israel, but, but man, I was standing on the hill overlooking Bethlehem, overlooking the fields. And I'm just imagining this, this area, these skies filled with God's angelic army. Now, what does that tell us? What that tells us is that Rome is not in charge. God is in charge. Right? Caesar Augustus, the exalted one, he's over in Rome sitting on his throne thinking he's all that. Demanding for people to call him exalted one or off with their heads or whatever. And he has a Roman legion that he can summon at any time. But here's the thing. A Roman legion that reported to Caesar is nothing compared to a heavenly legion that reports to Almighty God. No comparison at all. So God is in control. And by the way, if God gave us the eyes, spiritual eyes, to see right now into the heavenlies, we would see angels, I believe, all through this room. At the expense of being weird, just kind of look up and say hi to your angel, because he's, he's there. And I bet you they're cracking up and laughing right now. And I guarantee you there's no demons in this room, because we have a prayer team that prayed all those suckers out, and so they're out there somewhere, but we're here in the presence of God with the angels, and we're worshiping Christ. And so, man, when you compare Caesar Augustus, come on, give me a break, with the baby that's born in a manger, hey, guess what? In just a little over a decade, in AD 14, Caesar Augustus is going to die, and his body is going to rot in the grave. But this baby king is going to grow up. He's going to die too, but then he's going to rise again, and he's going to live absolutely forever. Right? When, when Caesar died, the world forgot about him. Right now, when you say the word Caesar, in our culture, we think pizza. <laughs> Let's go get little Caesars today for the game. But when you think the name Jesus Christ, you think King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Right? And so, listen, don't be duped by the world. Don't be duped by the pursuit of power or the pursuit of girls, guys, or the pursuit of glory, or the pursuit of money. Don't be duped by all of that. Be a humble servant and follower of Jesus Christ. Serve him by serving others behind the scene, making yourself of no reputation. You'll see God will do something amazing in your life and heart. So God's angelic army, in verse 14, you said it. They broke out, did you know this, in the first Christmas carol ever recorded. It wasn't Jingle Bells. It wasn't, you know, I saw Mama kissing Santa Claus. It was glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. It leads you to your next point, and that is 
the angels worship God with passion. Now, I just want to talk to you guys as your pastor here for just a few minutes. Please don't answer out loud, just answer in your heart. But when you come on Sunday morning as the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, do you worship God with passion? Or do you just kind of stand there, come in three songs late, just stand there with your hands in your pocket and watch the worship team and then, you know, judge whether on a scale of one to 10, how was that song? I don't know. What? When you come together, when we come together, do we worship God with passion? In other words, do we clap our hands when the song calls for it? Do we raise our hands sometimes during worship? Do we, every once in a while, I'm not saying all the time, all the way through the song, but every once in a while, do we shout out, praise the Lord? Do we ever do that? Do we sometimes kneel before God? Well, Pastor Mike, I don't want to come out, come across as fanatical. The angels were. And some of you guys like me who are football fans, this afternoon, you're going to get real fanatical. You'll be doing some kind of Pentecostal fit in your living room <laughs> when the Dolphins score a touchdown. When, when, a, when a human team scores a touchdown. What? But in church, it's like, let me show you what the Word of God says about worship. Just a few verses from Psalms. Psalm 47, 1 and 2. Oh, clap your hands. All you peoples, shout to God with a voice of triumph, for the Lord Most High is awesome. He is great, a great king over all the earth. Look at Psalm 63. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And so what I want to encourage you guys as your pastor is let's, as I say it all the time, right, let's make sure we come on time before the first note of the first song, if you can. You say, I have children, then, then leave 10 minutes early, get them checked in early, make sure you come in before the first note of the first song. Oh, come on, Pastor Mike, is it really that big of a deal? Is it a big deal for you to be at work on time on Monday? Well, yeah, I'll get fired. Okay, who's more important, your boss or the boss? And so come in early. Prepare your heart for worship. Clap your hands. Sing out. Every once in a while, shout out. Raise your hands. Kneel down before your seat. Do that. Now, now it's sad that I always have to make sure no one misunderstands, right? I am not saying take people's attention off of God and put it on you. I've been to some services where men in grown suits are like jumping over pews and they're waving handkerchiefs and they're doing laps and they're shouting and screaming out in tongues. I'm not talking about that at all. A lot of that is just emotional hype. That's not spiritual worship. So we don't allow that type of stuff going on, but we say, yeah, kneel before your seat. Please don't do it in the aisles. You know, there's the, you'll, you'll block traffic. There's people coming down. You want anybody to trip. You gotta be safe. Let everything, 1 Corinthians 14, be done decently in order, but let's worship God with passion. Let's stop being so stale in our worship of the Lord. Okay, look at verse 15 now. 
He says, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another. Can you see these shepherds all talking to each other? Whoa, man, let's now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste. It's the first Christmas rush. They came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the what? In the manger. So they're so excited, they rush to Bethlehem, and there's this baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in an animal feeding trough in the lower level of a cataluma. And there's Joseph and Mary. There's the baby. And I bet you these guys were absolutely awestruck. I mean, just like Joseph, remember um, was when, when the angel appeared to Joseph and said, it's okay, you know, your wife hasn't been with another guy. This is all of God. He's the Messiah in there. And just like Joseph would be staring at Mary's pregnant stomach, now I believe the shepherds are just staring at this baby, Israel's Messiah. How can you not? I don't know what it is when I do hospital visits every once in a while. I don't do as many um, as I used to when I was an assistant pastor, but every once in a while I'll go and, and I'll go see a family that just had a baby. And what is it about, isn't it true? What is it about babies? We just stare at them. We can't stop staring at them. It's like fire. Fire, you just, when you're around a campfire, you just stare, stare, stare. Babies and fire, I don't know what it is. And I, I think these shepherds are just staring and staring. Why? They're awestruck. This is Savior. This is Christ. This is Lord. Man, they're probably saying to each other, this is, this is crazy. He must love us. He must love us a lot that he would leave his throne in heaven and come to a place like this. And so the, they have an experience of the love of Christ. And now please look at verse 17. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known, please underline, if you don't mind marking in your Bibles, underline, made widely known. They made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at all these things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary, verse 19, kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. How do you know, Luke, that she pondered all these things in her heart? Luke would say, I interviewed her. Remember Luke 1, 1 through 4. Verse 20, then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And so once again, the shepherds, they made widely known what had been told them concerning the child. In other words, they experienced the love of Christ and then they couldn't just hold that in. They had to tell somebody. And that leads you to your last point. If you're taking notes, when you experience the love of Christ, you gotta tell other people. It just comes out. And so, some of you guys know my testimony. Others of you are new, you don't. Okay, I'll just share the very short version, okay? I grew up in the church. I went to mass every Sunday of my life growing up. Um, I never missed, as far as I can think. And remember, I never missed. And when I was 17 years old, even though I had gone to church every single week of my life, listen, it was up here, but it wasn't here. 
In other words, I walked into the church every single Sunday, I saw Jesus on the cross. And by the way, the Catholics are not like the Jehovah Witnesses and they're not like the Mormons. They believe in the biblical Jesus, just like you and I, that he is the eternal Son of God and Messiah. I heard it, I heard he died for the sins of the world, I heard it, but I did not know him. And one day, I'm a senior in high school, and thank God, um, this friend of mine gave me what's known as a gospel track. I didn't know what a gospel track was, just some kind of piece of paper, and, and on it were these Bible verses. And so I'm reading in my spare time. This is not an overnight thing. This is a process. During the process, somebody gave me one of those little green Gideon Bibles of the New Testament, and then Psalms and Proverbs in the back. And so I'd read Revelation and then the Psalms. And when I got a real Bible, I'm looking for Psalms after Revelation. I don't know where it is because I didn't know the Bible back then. And so I started reading these verses on this gospel track. And I read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a, help me out, a gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. And I was, I was like, uh-oh. I always thought that I'm a good guy. I say my prayers at night. Of course I'm gonna go to heaven when I die. But now I'm reading, it's not about works. It's a gift. And so I went to work one day, of all places, I worked at Little Caesars. <laughs> two miles south of the Big Sombrero on Del Mabry. And I'm there, 17 years old, and I'm washing dishes. And I'm going over Bible verses in my mind. And Romans 6.23 is what I was thinking about. For the wages of sin is, help me out, death. Okay, uh-oh. <laughs> I'm a sinner. I wasn't too prideful to admit. I sin all the time, right? And it says that the wages of sin is death. Okay, listen, you can't get saved until you realize you're lost. At the first time in my life, I realized I'm lost. But thank God the rest of the verse says, but the gift, there is a word again, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And for the first time in my life, 17 years old, washing dishes at Little Caesar's Pizza, I realized that I sinned, I deserve death and hell, but God so loved me, he became a man, and he, went, and he paid the price of my sins. He died as my substitute. Jesus did that for me? Yeah, and he's the only way. And all of a sudden, I, I believed. What, what does that mean? I accepted him. I accepted his payment. I knew I was lost. I knew I was up a creek without a paddle. I knew Jesus was the only way. And I, in that condition of repentance, I received Christ. And at that moment, all of a sudden, God came. I can't explain it except to say it was like waves upon waves of electricity and love flowing through my body while I'm at Little Caesars. Over and over and over, like, like, like waves of splashing and splashing and to the point where I have to say, okay, okay. What happened? I got saved. It went from here to here. I experienced the love of Christ and I had to tell somebody. 
Now, I had never been trained in EE. I'd never been trained in the Romans road. Nothing wrong with that, you should. It gives you confidence to share your faith. I didn't, know, I didn't even know what the word witnessing meant. But my dad pulls up in the van and, and I'm like, dad, Jesus died for our sins. And I'm just gushing out Jesus, the love of Jesus. You know, Jesus, Jesus. And my dad's just kind of looking at me, right? And, you know, he was very respectful, very kind. He was like that way his whole life. My dad was the most easygoing person you would ever want to meet. But I think his attitude was, you've heard this every single week. Well, guess what? I experienced the love of Christ. I realized I can't save myself. There's no good work that I can do to earn my way to heaven. Jesus is the only way. I received him. The shepherds experienced the love of Christ and they had to tell others. My question for you is, have you experienced the love of Christ? Is it just up here? Or has it gone down here? One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.